Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 11th chapter, the 2nd to the 11th verse. This is a most, in some ways, kind of a perplexing passage in the scripture, and it has to do with John the Baptist. We've, we've looked at John the Baptist now um, as the one coming out of the desert. We've seen him as one who is in some way, shape, or form influenced by the Essene community, whether he was a member of that, whether he was instructed by them, whatever, whatever it was. But we do know that it was a place where the sons of the priests of the temple would go um, in order to study the prophets and be imbued with the spirit of prophecy. And, uh, and so the presumption is, there's a very, there's a very fine book um, by uh, Father Jean Danielou um, called The Dead Sea Scrolls in Primitive Christianity. And in that, he deals with, with the, relation, the possible relationship of John the Baptist to the Essene community, to the Dead Sea Scrolls. But we know, of course, too, that John is recorded in Luke's gospel, is recognizing Jesus as Messiah even while still in the womb. We know that he, that he um, meets Jesus and baptizes him in the Jordan and says, you know, one is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Um, and, uh, and he therefore becomes, in a real sense, um, as Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the desert, make way the make straight the way of the Lord. And so we we have this very dynamic image of of John the Baptist, the one who Jesus says that uh, it will say later on in the, in this very same gospel that no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. Um, and yet we find him now, as we begin this gospel, in a position of weakness. And uh, that's not usually the image we have of the Baptist. We have the Baptist of the image of the, of the uh, holy man, the prophet coming out of the desert and so forth. But listen, listen now to what has happened to him. John in his prison had heard what Jesus was doing and he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or have we to wait for someone else? What a strange question that is. We're introduced here in Matthew. It isn't until the 14th chapter of Matthew, Matthew that we find out why John is in prison. But uh, we know that he's been imprisoned by, by Herod Antipas. And we know that he's in prison because um, he challenged the legitimacy of Herod marrying his brother Philip's wife. Um, we know, too, um, as the story goes on, that... Uh, that when he had therefore um, challenged those in, in power, um, that he infuriated not so much Herod as his wife Herodias. And so John now is in prison. And all of the things that he anticipated, John, as we know, was, was very much um, of a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was very much, he was the son of a priest of the temple. He was uh, a relative of Jesus of Nazareth. He was a relative of Mary of Nazareth. Um, he had a powerful following. In fact, is in one of the Gospels, they exaggerate and they say all of Judea was going out to, to welcome him, to, 
hear him and be baptized by him. And uh, so he is a dominant figure and one who is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. Yet here, in prison, he says, go and ask the Christ, go and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or we have to wait for someone else? What a dramatic turn of events that is. What a dramatic change that is in the tenor of John the Baptist, going from the powerful voice out of the desert to the quiet, troubled voice in the prisons of Herod. <clears throat> and why would that be? Why would he now begin to wonder, begin to doubt? And part of the reason, undoubtedly, is that John shared the vision of the Messiah. He shared the vision of the Messiah with the people of Israel. He expected the Messiah to do, you know, to be able to overcome the power of evil, to be able to be overcome the power of sinfulness, all of those kinds of things. And, uh, and now here he, John, is languishing in prison. The evil Herod and his wicked wife um, are somehow or other jovial, jovial and celebrating, you know, with their friends and living the high life. And John says, what is this? This is not the triumph of righteousness over sin. This is not the triumph of light over darkness. What is this? How does this come to be? And so he sends his disciples, obviously in prison. He's not in any kind of prison where he doesn't have contact with the outside world. He knows what's going on. But Jesus answered interestingly. He says, go back and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind see again and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised to life. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And happy is the man who does not lose faith in me. What he does then, what Jesus does is he doesn't say, yeah, go back and tell John I'm the one. I mean, that's how much power is in that kind of a declaration. But he says, tell him what you see. And then he goes through and he articulates not only the miracles that he has performed, but the miracles that were anticipated by Isaiah the prophet, the miracles that were, anticipa that were anticipated in, in the great um, uh, prophetic tradition, the very tradition that John went out into the desert. To, and so it is the most reassuring response that Jesus is able to give to John. And then he says to them, happy is the man who does not lose faith in me. Jesus therefore reaffirms the faith of the Baptist. He reaffirms the prophecies that the Baptist has spoken about. He reaffirms the fact that he is the fulfillment of the messianic mission that was articulated by Isaiah. He does not in any way even address the fallacious notions and understandings of who the Messiah was supposed to be that were prevalent within Israel of his age and of his time. And so he kindly, gently, and going right back to the source of John's very preaching and proclamation, reassures his cousin, reassures his friend, yes, this I am the one. But he doesn't say it in those kinds of words. He says it 
in John's words, the fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, I am the fulfillment of prophecy. Because the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So then, what has happened? John has experienced something very common in the church. He stands for us then as a living example of his own humanity, but of the weakness and the foibles of humanity. As, as they have come down to us through the ages. We have mentioned before that there is a tremendous amount of disappointment in the contemporary church. We know that this is one of the crises of faith in Europe, is that the church somehow or other was unable to prevent the First and the Second World Wars. That this disillusionment with the church, of the expectations of the church, led immediately after the war to the desire to rehabilitate human nature by the theologians, the post-war theologians, um, Carol Wotia, John Paul II, um, Karl Rahner, um, uh, Hans-Urs von Balthasar, and so forth. All of them wanted to kind of restore the notion of the relationship of human nature to the divine from the day of creation on and to overcome this sense of failure that was very much a part of the Lutheran understanding of human nature as depraved and as capable of no good. They wanted to say no revelation was true. There is something good in us. There is something hopeful in us. And whether it's John Paul's uh, an, uh, anthropology of Genesis in the, in, the, in the theology of the body, whether it's Karl Rahner's self-transcendence, whether it's uh, Hans-Urs von Baltivar combing the cultural history of man and so forth and showing how that reflects into the glory of God. Whatever it is, that's what it was for. But then something strange began to happen also, that even despite, even despite the colossal efforts of the post-war Catholic theologians, there came kind of a settling in on deeper reflection. And not only that, not only on the failure of the church to prevent the First and the Second World War, but once again then ravaged as the church became in, in, in the whole uh, abuse crisis that, that we are facing, was the final straw in some ways for the disappointment in the church. And it has led us to a strange phenomenon. We see it especially, we see it in a lot of places, especially in the German Synod. Well, since we are so terribly disappointed in God and so terribly disappointed in the church, um, we'd better really kind of take matters into our own, hand, own hands and rebuild the whole thing according to our intelligence and our wisdom and our insight and our understanding. Um, a tragic consequence of the disappointment in the church because it will lead even to deeper problems and deeper disappointments than what we have already experienced. But I say this and I bring this up because isn't this what John is going through in prison? I had hoped and I had thought that what would happen when the Messiah truly came is that the reign of sin and darkness and evil would be overthrown 
and the reign of the kingdom of light would come. The image of Isaiah's holy mountain, the image of the day of the Lord and the prophecies of old, all of these things were what were in the mind of the people of Israel, in the mind of the Baptist. And instead, what happens? He finds himself in prison, the powerful and the wicked reigning supreme, and ultimately to even reach out and brutally take his own life. And so in this colossal bewilderment, this colossal disappointment in who the Messiah was, John reaches out to Jesus through his disciples and says, what is this? What is happening? Why has this happened to us? Have we not heard this? Have we not heard? Why did we? Why were Christian nations involved in the First and the Second World War? Why did the horrors of both wars decimate a whole culture, a whole civilization, a whole people? Why, if the priests were supposed to be the altar Christi at the altar, why were they in the midst of these ghastly kinds of scandals and abuse scandals? Why? Is this what we're supposed to have? Is this what we're supposed to look forward to? What, what, we're disappointed. And John is saying the same thing. What we want to remember, however, is that the, appoint, the disappointment experienced by the Baptist is the disappointment ultimately of Israel, which leads Jesus to the cross that it is disappointment in Jesus which brings us then ultimately into the crucifixion, the glory of the Lord, and his resurrection. For God's ways are not our ways, and the wisdom of, the wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. We do not understand any more than John understood what was going on. But John, we can presume, remained ultimately faithful. And we ourselves have to presume that this too is our destiny, our direction, our journey. Despite the fact that we might be disappointed in the church, despite the fact that our disappointment in the church is a disappointment in Jesus, is a disappointment in God, and that we could fall to the folly of the German synod and say, well, we'd better create our own religion because certainly the one we've been given you know, hasn't served us well. And uh, since God obviously did not know what he was doing, um, we'd, better, we'd better use our own intellects, experience, wisdom, and insight and create something better than what the Lord created. Well, I think we can project how that's going to work itself out in due time. At the same time, however, we have to realize what a tremendous call this is, tremendous call this is, for fidelity and faithfulness and hope and trust in the wisdom and the goodness of the living God. Do human beings fail him? Have human beings disappointed him? Oh my, yes. But he himself knows what he's doing. He knows what's in our best interest. He knows what's good for us. For it says, Paul says in the letter, second letter to Timothy, God wills the salvation of all. 
And so he cannot be a malevolent God. The God who died for us and the God who rose from the dead cannot be a God of malice, a God of wickedness, a God of sin, a God of evil. He is a God of mercy and goodness. But the challenge is not his. The challenge is ours. He is always there for us if we are humble enough to accept his way and humble enough to understand the fragility of human nature and humble enough to trust in the power and the love and the mercy of God. Now, John, Jesus then goes on in this gospel and he says, as the messengers were leaving, Jesus began to talk to the people about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? In other words, why did you go out there? Were you disappointed in who you found John to be? Were you looking for a reed swaying in the breeze? Were you looking for someone to tell you what you wanted to hear? Someone to tell you what you think he should be saying? No, then what did you go to see? A man wearing fine clothes? Did you want this to be kind of a great upscale event? No, those who wear fine clothes are to be found in palaces. And we know in that reference, who is in the palace? Herod. Who is in the palace? Herodias. The adulteresses, the ones who are guilty of incest. Then what did you go out in the desert to see? A prophet? Well, perhaps a prophet. Perhaps that. Perhaps someone who spoke with the authentic word of God. Perhaps someone who spoke with the authority of the living God. For that's what prophecy is. It's not fortune-telling. It's speaking with the authority of God. Is that what you went out to see? Yes, he says, I tell you. But much more than a prophet. He is the one, and now he tells them who this Baptist is who has sent him this message. He is the one of whom scripture says, look, I'm going to send my messenger before you and he will prepare you your way before you. Has he just done that for us in this gospel? Has he just reminded us of the power of disappointment and yet of also the power of persistence and the power of belief? John, once he, if he had been disappointed by Jesus's response to him, if he had been disappointed by that response, he could have sent word to Herod saying, I take everything back, I'm sorry for what I said. Now, he didn't do that. He remained faithful, and he remained faithful unto his death. And then he says, for I tell you solemnly, of all the children born of woman, a greater man than John the Baptist has never been seen. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so he says then, and this is kind of, at first it sounds like he praises John, and then it sounds like he doesn't praise John. What is he saying about John? He says he's the greatest man that ever lived, the greatest man ever born of a woman. Why is he that? We've seen that before, because he is the one that brings the old covenant and connects it to the new. He is the one that, as I said before, ties the knot between the old and the new covenant and creates the, and therefore creates the bridge from prophecy to fulfillment, from prophecy to Messiah, from prophecy, from hope, 
into salvation. John is the one that connects the dots. John is the one that puts those things together. We see this very clearly in the story of the visitation. When the Ark of the Old Covenant encounters the Ark of the New Covenant, Elizabeth encounters Mary, and the child within the Old Covenant, John, within Elizabeth's wombs, leaps for joy when he is in the presence of the Messiah. So he is the greatest. We have great saints. We have great people all the way through the story of Christianity. But Jesus says none of them are greater than John the Baptist. And then he says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And he says that because human nature has been perfected in the, in the kingdom of heaven. John's human nature is still riddled with disappointment and with doubt, as all human nature is. And the, which is, it's the very motivation that causes human nature to kind of demand particular preconceived solutions to issues and problems. But in heaven, that no longer is so. For the human person is then made complete. They are perfected. They are perfected in their nature, perfected in their eternal life, perfected in all of the qualities and all of the characteristics that the Lord had given them and bestowed on them at creation. So what a gospel this is. What a powerful gospel this is. We are part of this gospel, you know? Um, this was one of the things that St. Ignatius of Loyola was, was, was very much um, uh, helpful with us in our prayer over scripture by saying, enter into the story, participate in these stories. We can participate in this story. We can say, why? Why? Why doesn't God do this? Why doesn't the Lord do this? Why does the Lord permit that? Have we ever heard anyone say that? How can God put up with this? Why did God allow this? All of that. That's the voice, that's the voice of the Baptist in prison. And that's the voice of God's people in the prisons of time. That's, therefore, the beginning of our participation in the story is the way that we can identify with the concerns that John has and the concerns that Israel had. Their doubts, of the doubts of Israel and the disappointments of Israel led Jesus to the cross. The doubts and the disappointments <coughs> of contemporary believers, contemporary members of the church are sending the church to the cross also. For we are becoming a pariah within society. We find ourselves being attacked over and over and over again by the secular cultures of Europe and of, of America. Um, certainly by the atheistic cultures of China and the, <coughs> and the hostile forces unleashed in West Africa upon the Catholic Church. We find it by making us kind of socially unacceptable in a way by canceling us within our modern society, by not listening to the voice of the church, by vandalizing our properties, by exploiting the weaknesses of the members of the church, 
by in every way, shape, or form emphasizing only the, only the faults, only the flaws, and nothing of the good. It is a form, a sophisticated form of persecution. It is a sophisticated form of crucifixion. We have yet to suffer too many of the physical consequences of it, but we can be fairly sure that, that those will come. We look at, for instance, the plight of poor Cardinal Zen in Hong Kong, brought before the atheistic tribunals of China at 90 years old and found guilty of a contrived crime that was made up simply to silence the Catholic voices of opposition to oppression and tyranny. Yeah, it's a complicated world. And we could say, why did the Lord allow that to happen to Cardinal Zen? We might also ask ourselves, why did the Lord allow that to happen to the North American martyrs? Why did the Lord had allow that to happen to the martyrs of the French Revolution? Why did the Lord let that happen to the martyrs of South America? Even of our own country, we have the blood of martyrs um, in Kansas and, and in the Southwest from the very earliest days of the church's excursions into, into our geographical society. Yep, why did the Lord allow it? He allowed it because it is the process of sanctification. He allowed John to come to perfection by facing his own doubts and facing his own disappointments and choosing nonetheless to remain faithful. Had he extricated himself from prison, we would say, yeah, he was not convinced by the prophets. But now, because he did not, and eventually was executed in prison, yes, he did. He did honor the prophets whom he had proclaimed, whom he had learned, who he had prayed over, whom he had studied. What are we to do with the modern disappointments, the modern frustrations? What are we to do with this whole rabid uh, abuse uh, problem. What are we to do? Why is the Lord allowing that? Why did the Lord let that happen to us? Why is that such, why has it decimated us so deeply, um, totally changed the relationship of the secular world to, to the Catholic Church, to Jesus Christ himself? Well, because we need to believe and we need to believe over and above the human weaknesses, for we are not great in the kingdom of heaven. We are less than the Baptist, for he is the greatest of men born of women. We are on a pilgrimage, we are on a journey. We are to experience the consequences of the failure of humanity, to hear the word of God and live it, in order that we might be able to see ultimately more clearly, yes, this was the Messiah, Yes, he died for us because the people of his age were disappointed in him. So the church is crucified from age to age because people are disappointed in her. And we ourselves are personally oftentimes ridiculed and rejected because people are disappointed in the community to which we belong, to the church of whom we are a member, to the body of Christ to which we are an integral part. And yet, the option is there for us to believe in humility, in truthfulness, and in faith, deep, abiding, and hopeful. That's what the Lord has given us, and what a great gift that is.
It took the Baptist into the kingdom of God, and it has taken multitudes of our people into the kingdom of heaven. If we remain faithful, it will take us there too. We will transcend the evils of this world because we have believed in the ultimate promise of Jesus Christ. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.